On this episode of Ghost Hunter Advice, we touch on concepts of mental illness and emotional stress. I just want to stress the point that we as ghost hunters and paranormal investigators are not qualified to diagnose mental illness. If you suspect mental illness or emotional stress or trauma in your case, please reach out to a licensed and certified healthcare professional specializing in mental health. Advice from the pros. From the pros. Stories from the, haunted. from the haunted. You're listening to the Ghost Hunter Advice Podcast. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Tanner Rutledge, and on this episode, we're going to be getting into tulpas and thought forms. But first, a couple of announcements. You just heard the new opening, and I want to thank Will Rice for, uh, for making that for the podcast. He is an exceptional sound engineer and uh, just did a great job. So that's our new opening. I'm super excited, uh, professionally produced, and I think it sounds great. But uh, let's, let's get on into the show. So... Coming up this weekend, uh, Saturday the 22nd at 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Time, we're going to be doing our first live listener question episode. If you are interested in getting in on that, go ahead and head over to Facebook and join the Ghost Hunter Advice Facebook group and make sure that you're in there because that is the only place where the live episode is going to be able to be heard. Really, really looking forward to that. I, I love interacting with you guys, and taking this to a listener question format is something that I've wanted to do for a while, and now we have the setup to do it. So we are going to be testing a couple of formats. I think you've noticed in the last few episodes that we've really played around with the format of the show to see what's going to work. And this is another experiment where we're going to be doing questions live. So if you have a question for me, you can, like on some of the other shows, you can go in there in the comments, ask your questions, and have them answered live. Also, if you have a question for me that maybe is a little bit more complex, it uh, needs a little bit of back and forth, you can actually shoot me a message on Facebook Messenger, and then we will do a voice call. But we are going to be running this through Facebook and using uh, the Facebook Messenger and the Facebook Calling app to do the actual listener questions and to have you guys call in. It's an experiment. We're going to see if it works or not, and uh, we're just going to have a good time. So that is going to be a full two-hour episode, and we'll also be deep diving a couple of topics in between the questions, so make sure you show up for that. If you like the show, please make sure that you subscribe so that you don't miss any of the episodes. We have new episodes dropping every Monday, and we're going to be switching back and forth from doing deep dive episodes like this one, listener question episodes and special guests coming on to assist with deep dives and to uh, talk about different personal experiences. Also, if you have experienced a haunting, if you're not a ghost hunter and you're having an issue and you, you run across this podcast because you're looking for help with your problem, email me at ghosthunteradvice at gmail.com and I want to make sure to, uh, to get you taken care of. If you are a ghost hunter, if you're a paranormal investigator with a team, I've been getting requests and I've been getting different questions from around the country and around the continent for residential hauntings and business hauntings 
I am working on putting together a network of paranormal investigators that are vetted so that when people call in and they need help, we have people to physically send out there. I am looking for a team or a representative in all 50 states. If that's something as a ghost hunter or a paranormal researcher you're interested in, email me at uh, ghosthunteradvice at gmail.com and uh, we can start the vetting process and I'll go over the, uh, the qualifications and what we're looking for in investigators there. So getting into the show, I want to start off with a question. Now, this one isn't actually a listener question. This is one that I ran across in a group and I reached out to the person because this is something I felt like needed to be addressed. There was a question that was asked in uh, a couple of the, the online forums and the ghost hunting groups. And on the surface, it looked like a, a really simple question. But guys, I want you to remember when you're out there, when you're representing this field, when you're representing ghost hunting in general, watch how you interact with people. This was a legitimate question, but she got a lot of heat for it. And we have people of, of different educational backgrounds. We have people of different levels of experience that are coming in. And then we also have people that are on the spectrum. And while they are incredibly intelligent individuals, they just need information broken down a little differently. And she was specifically asking for how to explain this particular topic to, uh, to someone that I believe fell on that spectrum. And what she asked was, with all of the ghost hunting equipment that we have and all of the high-tech stuff that we use in the field, why do we still just use regular flashlights? And this is how I broke it down. The first and foremost, the reason that we use flashlights when we're in the field is because we need to be able to see. And that's the simplest explanation for it. But when we're in some of these locations, there are hazards. When we're in areas with broken windows and they're dilapidated and maybe the floors are rotting and falling through, we need to be able to watch for those environmental hazards. And flashlights come in handy for that. We also use devices, especially if we're using a lot of the old analog stuff that doesn't have a, a lit screen. We're going to need to be able to, to view the, the monitors whenever there's a voice, whenever there's a manifestation, to see if there's any correlating data to go with that, such as an EM spike, an EM drain, temperature variations. We need to be able to see that, and we use the flashlights for it. Now, as far as using regular flashlights, I recommend that everybody have one with them, but I also recommend primarily using a red light flashlight. So that is a, a flashlight that's either got a red LED or some of the older, older ones had a red filter that went over the, uh, the light. And it basically just turns the room red and it, uh, it floods the area with red light. The reason that I recommend using a red light flashlight instead of a standard flashlight for your, your main source of illumination is because it will preserve your night vision. Regular LED lights uh, that have white light and blue light once you turn those off, it takes a few seconds to a minute or two for your eyes to fully adjust to the darkness. It leaves you vulnerable to trip over things. You could miss manifestations or things moving. Or if you're in a situation where you, you're in a building and there's someone else there, it could put you in a, a relatively dangerous situation where you're, where you're stuck with someone who is hostile or someone who is a little high or crazy and you can't see to get away from them when you've turned your flashlight off to possibly hide. So I do recommend using a red light flashlight because when you turn those off, it doesn't take time for your eyes to adjust to the darkness the way that it does with a regular flashlight. So make sure that you have a, a good red light flashlight. 
Anyway, getting into the bulk of today's episode, we were talking thought forms and tulpas. And this is something that I'm also going to cover poltergeist activity because this is going to be going over anything that could be a thought form manifestation or something that is generated by a uh, an individual or uh, a human agent style haunting. So really to get into tulpas, and there's there's some clomping around above me. I'm in a basically in a, in a basement uh, recording studio, so you guys might hear some thumping. I'm going to try to take that out, but just in case it's in there, that's what's going on. Anyway, with uh, with thought forms and tulpas, it's uh, it's important to realize that this is not a new phenomenon, even though it is kind of a buzzword now, and everyone has been turned on to these um, ideas of thought form hauntings and psychic manifestations. This is something that's been around for a while. Uh, in uh, in Buddhism, tulpas and uh, meditation techniques to to bring entities into existence or to uh, to manifest psychic energy. Those things have been going on for a long, long time, and we're talking centuries long, long time. Getting into uh, the modern ideas of thought forms and how they affect physical research and, and ghost hunting, we're going to look back from ideas stemming from about 1909, possibly the late 1800s, when sci- uh, physical research and psychic research really got going during the spiritual move, uh, spiritualist uh, movement. And originally, uh, if you guys are, are keen on the, the history of ghost hunting, ghost hunting was born from a need for the scientific community to understand and uh, often debunk mediums and fraudulent activity that was going on during the spiritualist movement of the late 19th and, er, and uh, early 20th century. One of the most famous parapsychological studies on tulpas and thought forms is the Philip experiment, uh, and that took place back in 1972 in Toronto. It was done by the Toronto Parapsychological Research Society. It's also known as the Owens Group because Dr. Owens' wife, uh, and I believe Dr. Owens, uh, the two were heavily involved with the, the founding of that group. So the, the, uh, the Philip experiment itself, this was a group of individuals who were interested in seeing if it was possible to create a fictional character and then make contact through seance with that character. Basically, what they were wanting to study was how much does uh, a person's belief and, and how much of uh, this communication with the dead could be could actually just be our own our own hopes and our own desires manifesting themselves from our subconscious into uh, into the real world and into the physical world. So what they did was they made a complete background for this individual with some conflicting data. Philip was uh, a man who lived in the 1600s. They gave him a, a very detailed background, including two wives, one of which um, was. Uh, the, the relationship ended tragically. I believe she was killed. And all of the events that they, they made for him it culminated in his suicide. When they first started doing the experiments, they didn't get anything. There was, there was no contact with Philip. There was, there was no manifestations. It wasn't until they started dimming the lights and they got away from the clinical setting and they started uh, doing things that were a little bit more akin to the seances of, uh, of the early 1900s and uh, late 1800s, where the lights were dimmed, they sat around a table, they had some cam- uh, candles going, and there was, a, there was kind of a spooky ambiance. And I think what affected it 
was it allowed the individuals engaging in the experiment to to fully give over to it and to to let themselves open up and uh, and get a full experience, an immersive experience. Once they did this, they started getting communication. The table levitated, furniture moved, there was wrapping, things floated around the room, and I believe there were actual manifestations at one point when they did this experiment. Now, they didn't just do this once. They put on shows. Uh, they had people come in to, to watch the, the, the Philip experiment and to watch them communicate with this ghost that they had created. And Philip ended up being, uh, according to the notes, according to uh, documentation on this experiment, he ended up being a, a pretty powerful entity who was able to levitate the table. He was able to manipulate things in the room and, uh, and, and fully manifest for people. And he was able to give information, facts, and details about the time when he was supposedly alive. But there was a limitation. And this is something that's incredibly important and it's crucial that we're going to get into when we talk about investigating thought forms. Philip's knowledge stopped with the knowledge of the, the collective group. So these individuals sat around a table in a seance and they concentrated on Philip. They concentrated on making contact with this, this entity that they had created. Their collective psychic energy, their collective thoughts are what formed Philip. Now, Philip took on a couple of unique traits and unique preferences during some of the tests. And I believe that these preferences were based on a combination of the preferences of the group. Kind of like when you have a child, he's a mixture of the two parents, she's a mixture of the two parents. This entity was a mixture of the individuals at that table. Now, he was able to give details that were known to the individuals of the group. It might have been a detail that was known to one individual that wasn't known to the other, but his knowledge base stopped with the knowledge base of the group, meaning that he wasn't actually a self-aware entity and uh, that he did rely on the, the concentration and meditation of the individuals there at that table to stay in, intact, which matches up to the, the meditation techniques used in, uh, in the Tibetan tulpas and in, uh, in some practices uh, that, that are mentioned with Buddhism. I'm not an expert on that religion. I'm not going to go too far into that. We're going to stay with the physical research side of this. But he, he seemed to only really exist or manifest when he was concentrated on. And that's the Philip experiment. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, I'm going to grab some water. And uh, when we get back, we're going to talk about tulpas. We're going to talk about thought forms and some of the lessons that were taken from the Philip ex experiment and subsequent experiments that uh, yielded very, very similar or in most cases, the same results. And uh, we're going to get into what that means when you're hunting ghosts. All right, so we are going to get into investigating tulpas and investigating thought forms and what exactly that means for you and the, the unique challenges that these cases can, uh, can take on or can cause for paranormal researchers and ghost hunters. Tulpas uh, and, and thought form manifestations, they often look like hauntings because... They, they technically are. Uh, this is a, a manifestation of some sort of unknown energy, which is what a ghost is. The, uh, the difference here is that they often don't have a personality of their own, but sometimes they do, or it at least seems like it. Uh, and, and that's what makes this so complicated. So uh, stay with me as we, uh, as we walk through this. 
starting the investigation, you're going to do this the same way that you would any other because we never really know what we're walking into as ghost hunters. If you were investigating a a location that is a, a known haunt that is maybe a historical site, you're probably going to walk into a little bit of this. And uh, we'll we'll cover that part at the end of the podcast because it's going to go very similar, uh, similarly to a, a residential haunting with uh, a couple of caveats and one or two differences that uh, that are still up for debate in the community. So going into a house and doing the interviews with the family, you're going to run through it the same way. You call in, you do the intake, you get all of the information you can from what they tell me there. I'm doing just some basic research on the property, and then I'm going to go to the property, and I'm going to interview the people there. It starts off the same as, as any other case. We're going to have them for two weeks go through and, uh, and do a, a journal documenting the, uh, the activity so we can see who is seeing the most manifestations. And I want every individual in the household to keep a separate diary. And what we're looking for is we want to make sure that the, uh, the manifestations and the activity that's happening there is actually matching up to what they are, uh, what they're all experiencing. If there are subtle differences here and there, that's totally normal. Even when I'm out investigating like a, a traffic collision or investigating a, uh, investigating a, a scene that, that has happened, the exact same event is going to be described 10 different ways from 10 different people. We might do an interview episode later, but uh, we're looking for things that are wildly different. Are, they, are some people in the house seeing a female and some people are seeing a male? Could indicate multiple entities. It could possibly mean that there's a thought form. Are they seeing the same person, but he's dressed differently? She's dressed differently? Um, is the voice consistent that they're hearing or is one person seeing shadows while one person is seeing, um, something else. We want to look for those inconsistencies. And if we, we have, a a level of wild variance, then we, uh, we want to make sure that we note that. And, uh, we look at it when we're going back through and doing more detailed historical research and doing, uh, doing the walkthroughs and doing the actual field investigations and the ghost hunts there at the property. And yeah, you're going to be doing multiple, especially on a case like this. And one thing that we're going to look for is one individual seeing the bulk of the manifestations, which can be common, but it can also point to a possible human agent. You want to look for who is present at the house when when they're taking their notes. Is uh, is the manifestation happening? Are the, the ghosts being seen, the voices being heard? When there's one specific person who's there all the time, everybody's seeing it, but it just so happens that the, uh, that the daughter is at the house every single time there's a manifestation, that could point to a, a thought form or a poltergeist type haunting. And we wanna make sure that we note that before we go to the property. Now, doing the walkthroughs. You're going to go through, you're going to, you're going to check the notes and you're going to interview everyone separately and you're going to identify where you're setting up the cameras, where you're setting up stationary equipment and uh, what you're going to be monitoring there at the house, whether it's uh, data loggers for environmental um, things like temperature, barometric pressure. You're also going to be looking at uh, EMF. I recommend, especially if you think that there's a thought form. Uh, make sure that you have something that's stationary that uses a data logger. That's why I do like the uh, the EDIs, uh, the Eddy Pluses. They have a data logger. They do all of that in the one device, but they are about 200 bucks a piece. But that is uh, why they're one of my favorites. I have found EMF 
that are about uh, $25 that have a good data logger in it. Uh, and then you can also get the, um, there are these environmental panels that are thermometers, humidity, barometric pressure, and they have a data logger. Um, I'd get one that's a little bit more advanced. So you can spend 75 bucks and use two units, or you can spend $200 and you can use one unit. Um, I believe the eddies are a lot more sensitive than these, but if you're on a budget, that's what I would do. And we'll do, uh, we'll do an updated equipment episode later um, where I talk about different devices that have data loggers. So you're not walking around the house with a bajillion different devices and uh, you, you get constant, consistent monitoring through the house. Anyway, back into it. When you're doing the investigation, nine times out of 10, the family's going to want to be there. And that's, that's good. When, uh, when you suspect a thought form or you suspect a tulpa or you suspect a poltergeist, you're, you're going to want to do a night with everyone there to see if you get any activity. And you're going to want to do a night where only the investigators are there at the house. Maybe the family is staying at a hotel, they're staying with a friend, but they are not there. If there is a thought form haunting, it's very, very possible, or a poltergeist haunting, it's very, very possible that you will get tons of activity or some activity when the family is there, and then you won't get anything when the family's not. And if this is something that stays consistent, say you do, uh, you do 10 nights, and five nights the family is there, five nights the family's not. You get activity on the five nights that they're there, but you get zero activity on the five nights that they're not huge indicator that you've got a thought form haunting, what I would do in a lot of those situations is look at the family. And if this is negative activity that's happening, this is going to be a very, very uncomfortable conversation that I'm going to have with them. But we're going to talk about possible um, counseling for the family. There's, there's some sort of breakdown in communication. There's some sort of, there's some sort of issue that's causing a heightened emotional state that is perpetuating the uh, the haunting in most cases. Uh, you will probably offend your client at the, at the onset of this because you're, you're recommending that they go talk to a counselor um, and they're going to probably accuse you of thinking they're crazy. Crazy people don't, or don't go to counseling. Healthy people who identify problems go to counseling and therapists. So if there's a breakdown in the home, if there's been a trauma, if there's something that's not being communicated, it can come out in paranormal activity through a thought form manifestation um, or through poltergeist activity. Now, in the, in the notes, in the, uh, the field notes and the, um, the diaries that you had the individuals keep, if you have noticed that when one person is there in particular, activity happens, especially if it's uh, a teenager um, someone going through a lot of, uh, oh my God, I can't talk today, hormonal changes, uh, or someone who has suffered uh, a tragedy, a trauma, do a night with some of the family members there, but maybe that person is isolated. If it does come back to that one individual, it's technically classified as a poltergeist, which again, I throw into thought forms because they work the same way. In cases where I've consulted. I've never had a case with a true poltergeist, a true single human agent that was involved. In cases that I've consulted on, when that individual has dealt with their trauma, um, has dealt with um, the angst, uh, whatever is causing the heightened emotional state that is 
basically powering and charging the manifestations that are generally subconscious. The, the, the family in thought forms and poltergeist activity, they don't know that they're causing the activity. It does seem to be another presence. It does seem to be another entity or, or possibly like a, a, a lot of people confuse this for a demon or a demonic attack. It's, uh, it's their subconscious. So I guess technically you could say it, it is another personality. It's another side of a person's personality that, uh, that is manifesting and making things move around the house, causing actual manifestations of shadow people. And depending on, on where this is coming from, if this is coming from a pretty dark place, the entities that show up in, or the, the, the I'm do, using air quotes here, the entities that are involved in these psychic attacks and paranormal activity and these hostile seeming uh, manifestations are pretty dark. And I've noticed in, in just about 100% of the, the thought forms, uh, poltergeist or, or cases like this that I consulted on, when counseling was involved, when the person dealt, uh, like I said, dealt with the trauma, dealt with uh, whatever was causing the emotional upheaval in the household, the activity stopped. And uh, another indication is if the family has tried having the house blessed, They've tried going through and doing exorcisms and they've, they've tried all of everything else and nothing has worked, but they haven't tried therapy. They haven't tried a counselor and they haven't even opened up about what it is that's bothering them. Um, this, this tends to deal with it and this tends to cause the manifestations and cause the activity to stop. And it works just about every time. Like I said, it is a, a very uncomfortable com uh, conversation. We as ghost hunters, we as investigators are not qualified to diagnose mental illness. We are not, we're not credentialed to, to even talk, uh, not, not talk about, but to diagnose stress and emotional issues that are, that are happening in a house. Not every stressor, not every cluster of, uh, I'm going to say emotional issues are, are actually a mental illness. It's just a season that someone's going through that they're not dealing with. What we as paranormal investigators and um, psychic researchers, ghost hunters, whatever you want to call yourself, in this field, it is absolutely important to find good therapists, good people with a, a background in psychology that we can bring into these situations. So when I run across this, I will recommend that they talk to a counselor. I do have friends that are counselors, that are therapists, family members that are highly respected therapists and counselors that I, uh, that I will bring in to, uh, to talk to individuals. If you run across a household where there is unaddressed trauma, there is unaddressed um, emotional issues, sometimes, yeah, mental health issues that are, that are not being taken care of, thought forms and poltergeist activity can occur. And according to some notes, can, can oftentimes occur. And unfortunately, when, when people start looking at going into therapy and they start looking at having to talk to someone, they'll, they'll completely shut down. So don't, don't be surprised if you go into a haunting and you, you realize that there's a human agent aspect to this. And you do recommend maybe talking to counseling when they're wanting someone to come in and do like a bunch of woo-woo stuff and a bunch of, uh, bunch of exorcism stuff. They, uh, a lot of clients are going to, to shut you down when you recommend that, but it works. And 
I might actually have uh, a colleague of mine who who works as a psychologist and as a as a counselor uh, come in and do an episode on on how to break that news and how to go about talking your clients into uh, into talking to a professional. But anyway, that's how I handle thought form ha uh, hauntings. That's my protocol for dealing with that. I am not a scientist. I am an investigator. I only have my observations, what I have learned from others, and uh, the the data that's been collected from from different uh, universities and different private groups when it comes to thought forms to to develop these policies. I rec I highly highly recommend, and I say this a lot, but uh, you do your own experiments. Find what works for you, and if you have something that works that is different from what I've said with dealing with poltergeist activity and dealing with thought form manifestations, hit me up, shoot me an email at uh, ghosthunteradvice at gmail.com. I would love to talk to you about that and, uh, and get your, your thoughts on it. All right. I said I was going to cover historical hauntings and, uh, and Tulpa's thought forms in that it runs very, very similar to your residential hauntings with one big caveat. Usually people don't live there and the stories are widely known. So in a thought form haunting, you're going to have the collective energy of the family and the believers in the house uh, that fuel the topa, that fuel the thought form. In a poltergeist haunting, you're going to have the angst and the, the raw emotion of one individual that is giving enough energy source to, to cause man uh, subconscious manifestations of thought forms in the house for a poltergeist haunting. In a historical haunting where we think that there's some sort of tulpa or thought form, you're going to have a major, major energy source for the, uh, for the entity and for the manifestation because these stories are so often widely known or, or they're widely accepted. And that makes things a little bit more difficult because it's possible that you are actually dealing with an entity that... Um, and I looked away from the microphone. There might be a little bit of a difference in the volume there. Sorry about that. We're still getting used to the equipment. But they're going to have a pe perpetual energy source. So everybody's reading the stories. People are creating new stories. And this is where I think we get more into specifically a traditional tulpa. Because you have one geographical location where there's a lot of belief. There's a lot of um, energy that is going toward feeding whatever's there or creating whatever's there so what you're going to look for when you're investigating a historical site where you think there's a tulpa is widespread sightings that vary so we have an entity here and i think it's really more of an elemental and i'll, I'll get into that because I, I do want to do a rundown of this case later when we start doing um, an episode on inhuman spirits and inhuman hauntings but um, so there's an area here, uh, a story of old green eyes at uh, the Chickamauga battlefield that is near Chattanooga. And old green eyes is um, there's a couple of different stories. He's a he's a head that floats down the park because he's a he's a head that was taken off by a cannonball. and He floats looking for his body. There's a, another one where he's a Union soldier who was left for dead and now haunts and stalks the um, the battleground with glowing green eyes. In another story, he's a Confederate soldier. In another story, he's a massive Black Panther at the Ohio Monument with glowing green eyes who protects the dead and the secrets of the park. There's, uh, there's stories now that I have not been able to verify yet 
um, of, of sightings of green eyes dating back to pre-Civil War times with the indigenous population. But there's, there's a lot of stories, and when you dig into these locations, there's not a lot of facts to support it. Um, oh, one of them, he's a, a railroad worker or a hobo that lost his head on the, on the tracks. But when you start digging back through these records, you start finding the inconsistencies and you're like, well, that person never existed, especially in uh, there's there's a couple of houses where there's a maid or or an old property owner who used to own it. And when you dig back through the records, big indicator that you've got a tulpa or a thought form, that person that everybody refers to as Kate or everybody refers to as Maggie never existed. But the entity there answers to Maggie and appears in period clothing and kind of sticks to the uh, the basics of the story, but that person never existed. That's an indication of a thought form. Not a lot that you can do there. And with historical locations, most of them actually aren't looking to, uh, to deal with or live with the spirit. Uh, a lot of those locations are actually just looking for you guys to uh, to collect EVPs and to collect evidence and to uh, to get a good story to uh, to get people in there and paying money for experiences or um, getting people in there for the upkeep like we've talked about on previous episodes. So that is something that I would look for in historical locations. If you are deep diving the research at a, at a historical location and you cannot find information on the spirit that you have been communicating with, really, really good chance that you have a thought form. And this gets into uh, my last point, because this episode is running pretty long, the dangers of you creating a thought form at a haunting. So I have a theory that thought form locations, locations where these entities, uh, they, they tend to happen, there are certain environmental things that need to be present. In the Philip experiment, they had to dim the lighting, they had to set the ambiance, and they, they had to really get into a position to lose themselves to cause manifestations. And when the manifestation started, it was basic communication. As ghost hunters, we are oftentimes walking around in the dark. We are oftentimes in a, a heightened state of awareness, and we're wanting to get evidence so bad. It is possible that when you get that EVP, when you get that manifestation, when you're out at a location, you caused it. And this is something that as ghost hunters, we have to be very careful about, especially with using spirit boxes and using uh, EVPs. There might be a legitimate EVP that is not, or a legitimate photo that wasn't doctored, that is not pareidolia, that is actually a manifestation of a thought form that you as an investigator or you as an investigative team actually caused. One way to combat that, and the only way that I, that I think to combat that, is to go in with an open mind. We all want communication. We all want to get proof. But we have to keep an open mind and be an objective third party. This is where professionalism comes in. This is where it's very, very important to kind of check yourself at the door. Yes, there's a good possibility that this location is haunted. Yes, I do want to get information. But do not concentrate too hard on getting that information. Go in open-minded. Whenever I go to a location... I never really expect to see anything. I, I don't concentrate super hard when I'm doing EVPs. I try to clear my mind uh, during EVP sessions so that I'm not possibly projecting anything. And I, I know that sounds a little weird, but try it. See if uh, in your investigations, if your mind is clear, if you get less EVPs. And 
something that is super important when you're doing the um, the review. In in instances where I think, huh, I wonder if I caused that, the uh, the response to the question that was asked or the uh, the EVP that we got didn't really match up to the property. So if you're getting like good class A EVPs, but they're basically nonsense and they don't have any context, maybe look at those as a possible thought form manifestation. Anyway, that's just a theory of mine. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Again, thanks to Will Rice for that awesome intro. And guys, if you were looking to get involved with Ghost Hunter Advice, remember to join the Ghost Hunter Advice Facebook group. You can ask your questions there, have them answered by ghost hunters and uh, physical researchers that uh, that have immense levels of experience and, and professionalism and uh, possibly have your questions answered on the air. If you have questions for me, if you're new to ghost hunting, if you're you're looking at different equipment and you want an experienced perspective, email me at ghosthunteradvice at gmail.com to have your question answered on our next listener question episode. You can also um, request to call in and make sure in those emails you let me know your, your preferred pronoun. Guys, thank you so much for listening to Ghost Hunter Advice. And I will see you guys next week.